Hey, Alyssa, remind me how you feel about spiders. If I can put it in the glass and throw it outside, okay. How about giant CGI spiders more realistic than that Perchwee episode? Or spiders bigger than a Volkswagen? Nope, nope, nope. Absolutely not. And so, of course, we're going to have an episode with all of those kinds of spiders. It's Arachnus in the UK on This Week in Time Travel. Oh, so that log line, uh, knowing that this episode was coming up, you just must have been filled with excitement and anticipation. Those are not the words that I would have used, but sure, fine, that's okay. Like, <laughs> I I don't mind spiders generally. I grew up with, like, tarantulas outside my house, but tarantulas are fine. They don't bite you. They don't come after you. You can scoop them up and hold them in your hands and then carry them outside and put them back outside where they belong. My brother, however, lives in Australia, where there are giant spiders that are bigger than he is, and no thank you, do not want... Like, I'm not terrified by Planet of the Spiders, but, like, that image of Sarah Jane with that, like, spider on her back is just... No. I have to ask the inevitable follow-up, then. You have disparaged Planet of the Spiders before. Is it about the plot, or is it about the spiders? Oh, it's mostly about the plot, but it's also kind of the spiders. Okay. What a way for your favorite classic Doctor to go, huh? You know what? I just don't count that as his departure episode, and that's fine, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, funny we should mention the third Doctor in Planet of the Spiders, because this is a very third Doctor-esque kind of story. This time around, isn't it? It really is. Although it's more Green Death than Planet of the Spiders in terms yeah. of its politics and tone, you know, it's uh, very much got sort of a uh, environmentalist slash maybe we should question capitalism slash maybe having business moguls who decline to take any responsibility for any of their actions whatsoever and build empires mostly based on egos and reputations are not to be trusted with any amount of power whatsoever. So, you know, it's got it's got a lot of interesting stuff going on in it. We said last week that Rosa was exactly the story we needed then. What about this story? Because I felt like for the most part that this was exactly the kind of story that I wanted now. You know, I think it's a good episode to follow up on that. You know, I think uh, in the future when this is all up on Amazon Prime, uh, when people are binging through the episodes, they're going to need to take a break after Rosa. And this is a nice sort of easing back into it of a very, very sort of classic Doctor Who story. There's monsters and things that can be fought. It's low key and kind of funny throughout it. Like, it's scary. There are spiders that will cocoon you and kill you. And I never would like to see a spider larger than, you know, my hand ever again in my life. But it, it, it is more of a comic relief slash character building kind of story. We get to come back to see Yaz's family. We get to learn more about her and her life. We get to see Ryan and Graham sort of revisiting their grief over Grace's death. And we get to see them 
you know, all of uh, the doctor's companions choose to have a life with the doctor, which is the critical moment of this story. You know, it's very sort of classic RTD kind of move, actually. That moment of, will you be my companions? Will you come and live and travel in the TARDIS with me? You know, the last few Moffat companions have been field trip companions of they'll come but they mostly live their life on earth and that was a fairly explicit moment of no i'm gonna stay on the tardis for a bit i'm gonna become a little bit of a permanent residence and that's that's really what we needed to see because they kind of got accidentally sucked into their current adventures and we needed to have a moment for them to revisit to regroup to come back home and realize no i'm not just gonna be janet fielding through the entire story going well have we gotten back to sheffield yet they're going to make a conscious decision to stay. Yeah, well, since you've uh, just leaped right to the end of my carefully constructed uh, show notes outline here, uh, let's steer into that for a moment, because this is the creation of a proper team TARDIS, even though it is assumed that they have had all kinds of adventures from the end of the Ghost Monument on their way to trying to get back to this point in time. The Ninth Doctor extends the invitation to Rose. There is no opportunity for, like, carefully considered consent or anything like that. It's like, did I mention it also travels through time? And she just runs right in there. This time around, it is the most clear-eyed consent. You know, they've been through some adventures already. They know what they're getting into. The Doctor could be forgiven for saying, that's great, come on in. But she is like, no, be sure. Yeah, I think it really needs that this time around. You know, Doctor Who could get away with that really kind of earlier because it was still fun and impulsive. And people were, for the most part, there was a lot of new people that were coming into the show at that point. And it's really like as much as it's a continuation of the classic series, it's really sort of its own thing. And we really didn't have quite an expectation of what things were going to be like for the companions. And now we've had a couple of years, you know, over a decade now, where we've seen the type of dangers and travels that these companions can get into. So I think now is really kind of the moment for Doctor Who really to sort of acknowledge its genre (laughs) and acknowledge uh, Mm -hmm. what the potential risks and consequences are here. This is very much the 13th Doctor. The 13th Doctor, you know, this is, I really love what they're doing with her characterization because she is alien without being cruel or needlessly oblivious, which has sort of been my complaint over the last couple of years that the way they've tried to make the Doctor alien is by, you know, making the Doctor cruel or making the Doctor totally forget basic human customs that they should have really already known. Um, Over the last couple of doctors, honestly, I think Matt Smith and Peter Capaldi's doctors were both vulnerable to that. Definitely. And what they're doing right now with this doctor is she's not quite sure of, you know, the time, you know, she drops that. Ed Sheeran, everyone's talking about him now, right? Like if you traveled back 20 years and just been like, 
God, who's the pop star now that everyone is supposed to be talking about? Can I name drop them a few times? Uh, she forgets that you're not really supposed to casually mention that you have dealt with spiders while flying with Amelia Earhart. You know, that's her type of alienness. She's, you know, a little bit out of time, a little bit out of place, doesn't quite know how to carry a conversation without being slightly weird. But she's not needlessly cruel and she's not totally oblivious. You know, she recognizes that even if she doesn't know exactly what pop culture icons she's supposed to drop into casual conversation right now, she knows that traveling with her is an experience that changes people, sometimes for the worse, most of the time for the better. And she needs to acknowledge that and make sure to the best of her ability that her companions are ready for what they're about to encounter. We could say that the 10th Doctor and to a certain extent the 11th and 12th Doctors with regards to specific companions had attachment issues. The 13th Doctor seems to be all about connection. We got the preview to this episode being the scene of her on the verge of saying goodbye to her friends and then yes invites her over for tea and it's just it's delightful. Tea at Yaz's place. That's wonderful. That's brilliant. This is a doctor who thrives on human connection in a way that few previous doctors have. Exactly. Yeah. So I like where they're going with her characterization. I like that she's a little bit more grounded. And I say that more with regards to her writing than her character itself. But it's alien without being off-putting, which I think is important. Um, so yeah, I'm very, very happy. So getting back to the story, felt like a Torchwood kind of story to me. It felt like not just Third Doctor, but, you know, it, ha it had some of that Torchwood feeling from like season one, season two, minus all the swearing and the nudity and stuff. Um, but it, it just sort of had that sort of ground level horror kind of feeling. And how scary was it for you? I mean, I know you don't like spiders, but... I mean, it wasn't too scary. I think... For me, it was scary enough that I definitely cringed a couple of times. I've also spent the weekend binging The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. So like on the scale of things that have scared me the most this weekend, Arachnids in the UK is definitely not the scariest. I didn't have to close my eyes at all during it. I know I'm a very, very big baby over here. And yes, I am. I don't do horror at all. There's just, it's not happening, folks. Um, but uh, it was fairly good at making CGI spiders properly scary, that there was some dread factor there. Um, and they did it without needing to go too far beyond the realms of belief. You know, like these were giant mutated toxic spiders, but they weren't like super intelligent killing machines. I actually felt that it was a very nice touch to say like, they're confused and afraid, too. They have no idea what's happening to them right now. And they're not, you know, they're defying their basic nature a little bit. But, you know, they're very, very big. And they're very, very out of their element right now. So it was kind of a, a very empathetic take on the spiders, too. <laughs> yeah, uh, it doesn't start out that way. The spiders are scary. The victims are cocooned. And that is the creepiest thing that we've had by far all season. And then as it becomes more and more clear that these are just animals, confused, mutated, their instincts are all scattered, higgledy-piggledy, they do become more sympathetic. And the story ends with 
basically the smaller spiders trapped in the panic room and the mother spider dead, although she would have died of natural causes. Does this story give you enough sort of closure as far as, you know, the basic plot mechanics of this uh, Chibnall written in Abrahamian directed story go? Not not quite, you know, like I felt this didn't do really as good a job as the ghost monument in explaining sort of its anti-gun stance because I'm not entirely sure what they meant by a more humane death by locking them in the panic room. Does that mean the lab is going to come back and take care of the spiders or are they going to be left to starve to death in there? If there's a spider literally suffocating under its own weight, like... That doesn't exactly strike me as humane itself. No, like I... There was clearly like what the Trump-esque figure... What was his name? Um... Jack Robertson, about whom more later. Okay, there was a name to that guy. Jack Robertson. (laughs) um, Like, it was clearly him trying to be big, beefy American 80s superhero, come in with his gun and take down the monster, which, you know, you're doing the wrong things for the wrong reasons, my friend. But I really couldn't get a clear, like, how, how is it more ethical to let a thing suffocate under its own weight than give it a quick and merciful death, even if it requires some intention or use of a tool that you do not approve of? Like, it wasn't really clear to me that what they were actually doing was a little more ethical or humane. Um, so a little bit unsatisfied with how that plot wrapped up, but not enough that I'm going to pitch a fit over it. No, I I wasn't satisfied with it either. And I just felt like it wasn't the most important part of the story for Chris Chibnall. So he gets it to the point where the spiders are contained. The mother spider is dead. That's everything I need to deal with right now. Let's go back to the character stuff. Exactly. That's how it very much felt like. Um, Yeah. In terms of the story, in terms of the just straightforward plot structure and writing of the story, this is the least satisfying of the four episodes so far to me. But again, the stuff that is done with the characters all along the way as well, and the direction, Abrahamian's direction is just really, really good. There was a line uh, one of my favorite writers said, you know, the plot is not king. The plot isn't even the prince. The plot is the seventh duke over there who uh, tends to drool over at the side of the mead <laughs> hall or something like that. You know, I'm not saying that it's that bad. But as far as the plot's concerned, this is the slightest of the four, I think. A bit, yeah. Chris Noth is totally not Donald Trump, totally hates Donald Trump, is totally like Donald Trump. Basic psychology, folks, the things that you hate the most in the people that you encounter day to day is because they remind them of yourself. It also felt like that was totally for legal reasons. Like, look, it's definitely not based on a real person because we named the real person over here. So see, not the real person. Ha ha, can't lawsuit us. (laughs) Is this, in fact, a big bad? I don't know. It was a very kind of like unsatisfying conclusion Like, it's kind of rare and weird that, you know, I don't know if he's, like, he's villainous. I don't know if he's, like, supposed to really be the villain of this story or just, like, a antagonist. But, like, he gets to, you know, shout his final thing at the doctor and she's angry, but 
doesn't respond to it. And it's kind of weird to leave the villain walking away with what really feels like, to him at least, like he's walking away thinking he's the hero of the story right now. He just brought down the spider that was threatening his hotel. And his fundamental beliefs in this situation were not rebuked. Uh, And it's kind of weird for Doctor Who to leave a story on that note. So it feels like, I don't know if he's, you know, worth coming back to in another story, but it felt kind of incomplete at the end of this one. With his attack on the spider, you know, he says, how's this for fire and fury, which is a direct reference to a book about Trump, Mm -hmm. which, you know, uh, yes, Chris Chibnall knows exactly what he's doing with politics in this series of Doctor Who. Have no doubt about that. And then he says, this is what's going to get me into the White House. And he saunters off and everybody else in the room is concerned about what that might mean. I hope if if he ever becomes president or something like that, that sounds like a setup for the return of Chris Noth. I would not be upset to have Chris Noth return because he is a fantastic actor who did a fantastic job in this story of like walking that line between comedic figure and antagonist figure. Yeah, I don't know. It feels like they're setting him up for a return of something. Let this be a reminder to all of us that a Chris Noth-like figure should not be a nominee against Donald Trump in 2020. We have better options. I have no idea what you might be referring to there. In the meantime, I think that he is very much in the tradition of Henry Van Staten and Max Capricorn, you know, Jack Robertson, you know, just sort of a hammy parody of capitalism slash American thuggishness. I mean, Max wasn't American, but you know what I mean. He was Uh, sort of in that vein. That's what Doctor Who does, and Doctor Who is family television, so... There is going to be some mustache twirling involved. A little bit. I did like, I I felt this was less hammy than previous versions of that type of character. Like, I feel like I could walk past that Chris Noth type villain in the street any day of the week. Like, I don't think uh, Henry Van Staten or Max Capricorn was like terribly familiar or realistic. Like, they serve their purposes for that story. But like... This I'm just going to call the villain Chris Noth. I'm really sorry, Chris Noth, but I don't know. I don't know what your character's name is. Jack Robertson. Jack Robertson. Fine. Jack Robertson <laughs> feels like somebody I could walk past on the street and go, oh, yeah, that jerk. I know that jerk. Girl, we got to get you out of Washington, D.C. <sighs> so we have been waiting for three weeks for... Yaz to have a turn. And she finally got a turn, I thought. Yeah, this was a good story for Yaz. Like, I want more because I feel like this is still just sort of scratching the surface. But, you know, we see where Yaz is coming from. We see her family. We see what maybe is driving her into the TARDIS. You know, it's not just a career where she feels like she can't move beyond the basics. It's also she's living in a flat with her parents and her sister and that's a lot to have to do. And you can see where all the personalities come from. You can see where Yaz is very similar to her family. And you can also see exactly how that will drive anybody up a wall. So yeah, I feel like we're starting to get more. Also, was that a hint that Yaz is bisexual? Like, was her mom just being like, are you dating her? Are you dating her? Or does she know that Yaz is bisexual? I'm just going to go with Yaz is bisexual. (laughs) She's one of us. (laughs) Maybe. It was really interesting to see 
A friend of ours offline suggested that there was a lot of shipping fodder provided in this episode. I also really like the way Yaz's sister just made an absolute play for Ryan. <sighs> Yaz's sister could be my sister. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Yaz was also very take charge. She had Mandy had a lot of scenes where she was the lead, and Yaz acted in a lot of sequences like a police officer would. You know, she took charge. She was the first person following the doctor out of the room to get stuff done. The only thing that sort of surprised me about this episode was when Yaz came to pick up her mom at the hotel and was encountered by Robertson and Kevin. Kevin. Is that his? Yes, Kevin. I lost my Kevin. When when Kevin pulls a gun on them, uh, Yaz doesn't pull rank or, sh- or or show her badge or whatever it is. You know, I, I was kind of expecting that. I think that it might be a little bit more difficult for a woman of color to pull that move when a white dude with a gun is coming at you. Uh, especially, you hear what Jack says of like, what are you, 15? Like this, I think she's aware that it would be far more difficult for her to pull that move than a white cop in that situation. Especially, you've got a gun pulled on you. You don't put your hands into your pockets. Especially when you're a person of color. So... There are limits, I think, to what she could do. And I, I don't think it's a fault necessarily in the storytelling that she didn't pull rank. I'm, I'm wondering if that was intentional. Well, her family is not as bat crap crazy as Martha Jones's was, but they are very entertaining. And her mother's protectiveness and seriousness did remind me of Martha's mother quite a bit, but in a more nuanced way. It's a good episode for Yaz, a good episode for Mandeep Gill. I do want more, and I think we are going to get more based on synopses for future episodes. So, um, But it's really good for all of the characters. Ryan is not centered in this story, but he and Toast and Cole just, they shine in every scene they have. I love that scene where he's in the background making shadow puppets while uh, <laughs> the doctor's working out the spider situation. And then Graham... Oh, God. You know, it was one of those that I have very conflicting feelings on because, Chip, you and I have both lost parents recently. So, like, that watching Graham grieve for Grace was just absolutely heartrending. And yet it simultaneously reminded me of how much I hate that they fridged Grace, that she just appears in like little ghost-like moments to check in and make sure that Graham's okay and that he knows how to function as a basic human being in his house. Like Grace's character deserved a lot more than just that. Um, so again, that Grace's death is going to be used to to fuel, looks like they're using it primarily for Graham's character. Let's see if it comes up more for Ryan. But, you know, when it's that moment of, do they go with, yazzed for tea or do they go and go back home it's not ryan who goes back to his nan's place it's graham that goes back so there's a lot there that makes me just ugh. well my loss is more recent Mm -hmm. and it's the it was the loss of my mother so um i'm a little having a father who is coming home to an empty house now um I have to admit that I forgot a lot about the problem with Grace and the problem with 
what was done to her character in the first episode of the season because what Bradley Walsh did in those scenes and the Graham-centered aspect of those scenes was just unutterably painful. Um, and it was it communicated the thing that it was intending to communicate to me for mm -hmm. very personal reasons. Yeah. And I think we can have both of those feelings, both that, you know, it was an incredibly well shot and well acted sequence, that it was heartrending and incredibly emotional, and that it's kind of symptomatic of a bigger problem that they're not quite tackling. Yeah. Uh, so we wind up with uh, let's let's take a final check in with the doctor's character in this episode, you know, peak humanist, although she's got two hearts. The monsters in this episode aren't monsters in her eyes. They're just really big animals. She is reluctant to say goodbye to the team TARDIS before they're officially christened and uh, eagerly follows them off for tea. And then that final moment back in the TARDIS, the 13th Doctor keeps saying that she's figuring out who she is. I feel like I've got a handle on her. And the just the, the sheer gratitude that she has for this company that is with her, it's new and different and it sparkles for me. Yeah, I feel like I've mostly got a good grip on her, but I feel like I really don't fully get a Doctor until like the beginning of their second season, because the first season they're still warming up, getting into it. Second season, they're coming out with confidence and it's fun. But she's really set her mark on the role. And this doctor is shining as a unique and distinct character already. And one that still fits into the 50 year plus history. It You can see direct lines from just about every doctor into Jodie Whittaker. And it is quite brilliant to watch. We've mentioned her in passing a couple of times, but Sally Aparamian is the director of this episode, and I think she did a phenomenal job with it. I think she did as well. Excellent CGI, excellent building of dread throughout the story, good mix of CGI and practical effects. I hope that uh, we get her back for more stories in the future. It takes a lot of work to make your actors believably run away from nothing that's going to be added into CGI after the fact. The sense of dread, the sense of menace and danger for an episode full of just non-hostile, non-evil aliens. It was actually proper scary stuff. This week on The Incomparable Network... It's time for another draft episode of The Incomparable. This time they're drafting movie scores. If you ever wondered what the Magnificent Seven theme sounds like when hummed by seven people in seven different keys, here you are. Tim and Jason ponder what the streaming TV landscape will look like next year on Tim Goodman's TV Talk Machine. And sophomore lit with John McCoy dives into H.G. Wells' The War of the Worlds. All this and more at TheIncomparable.com. Thanks for joining us on This Week in Time Travel. We will be back next week. You can find us online at thisweekintimetravel.com. We're on Twitter at DRWhoThisWeek. Chip is on Twitter at Numeral2MinuteTimeLord. And I'm on Twitter and Tumblr at Feminism. You can find this podcast on Facebook, too. 
Christopher Breen gave us our original theme music. David J. Lore gave us our podcast artwork. We encourage you to please review us on Apple Podcasts. Consider becoming a member of the Incomparable Network and to tell all your friends about us because they won't listen if you don't. We'll see you next week on This Week in Time Travel. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.